Uh, it is an honor to share the word with you this morning uh, to my church family, who I love very much. It has been my prayer and my desire to honor God in rightly handling the word. It is my prayer that the body will be edified uh, during this time. And thank you uh, for your prayers over the last several weeks. I appreciate the text messages and uh, the personal words letting me know that you guys have been praying. Those prayers are much needed. Um, as we study Romans 3, verses 21 through 31 this morning, I, of course, will not be able to plumb the depths of God's Word, uh, but hopefully in the coming months or coming years, we'll be able to sit under the preaching of Pastor Brian through Romans as we can study uh, more fully, more deeply. If you have your bulletin, uh, would you stand with me? Or if you have uh, your Bible uh, in ESV translation, if you'll stand with me, we'll read Romans 3, verses 21 through 31 in unison. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. For is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself in your plan of salvation through your holy scriptures. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. Would you make our minds attentive and engaged? Would our affections be stirred as we see the amazing work that you have accomplished to save us? Would you bring saving faith to those who may not be trusting in Christ? And for those who are, would you sustain and grow our faith? We pray all these things for the sake of your name, and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. My sermon title, as you'll see in the bulletin, is The Righteousness of God. And I have uh, five ma main points, uh, followed by application. Just do a brief survey of those main points. Uh, first is the righteousness of God manifested in verse 21. The righteousness of God received by faith, verse 22a. The righteousness of God needed, verse 22b and 23. The righteousness of God gifted, verse 24 and 25a. God's righteousness 
upheld, verse 25b and verse 26. And then we'll have application as we look just briefly at verses 27 through 31. The Apostle Paul begins this section of theological discourse with some of the sweetest words of Scripture. But now, a major shift has taken place in this letter to the Romans. And in order for us to grasp and be prepared for the good news that Paul will lay out for us, we must first understand the things that were previously covered thus far. And after the greeting and introduction in Romans 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, Paul presents the condition of man and his relationship to a holy God. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul explains that God has revealed himself to all people through the general revelation of creation. And instead of responding to this general revelation in honor and thanksgiving to God, man suppresses the truth. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is God's abiding wrath waiting to be poured out against sinful, God-denying man. Man's suppression of truth leads to substituting, to exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images made by hand. Therefore, God gave them up. We see this in chapter 1, verses 24 verse 26, and verse 28. We see God abandoning man so that man can pursue his sin full speed ahead without the restraining grace of God, resulting in the lust of the heart, leading to impurity, leading to dishonoring their bodies, leading to exchanging natural relationships for unnatural relationships, leading to a debased mind. Dr. Steve Lawson refers to this kind of wrath as God's abandoning wrath. In chapter 2, Paul presents the case that both Jew and Greek, we could say both Jew and Gentile, possess the same standing before God. Every person has failed to fulfill and meet the requirements of God's law. The written law of God testifies to this reality, but not only the written law of God, but our own conscience testifies to this reality. Chapter 2, verse 12, and then 14 and 16 reads, For all have sinned. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. By Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, we see again that both Jew and Greeks are under sin. And in verses 10 through 20, the Apostle Paul drives home the reality of man's condition in God's displeasure and wrath that abides on all people. Verse 10 through 20 reads, chapter 3, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on, under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know what whatever, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now knowing the background leading to, up to chapter 3, verse 21, we must say with Job, as he does in Job 9.2, Truly I know that this is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? And that is the question that we will answer this morning. Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Our first point is the righteousness of God manifested. The righteousness of God, how are we to understand this phrase? First, it speaks to God's own righteousness. That is, he always does what is right and just. Psalm 36, 6, the righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Psalm eleven seven, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is an essential quality of who God is. It's an unchanging righteousness. It is an unmeasurable righteousness, and is, it is an eternal righteousness. Dr. John Snyder speaks to God's righteousness and says, the moral perfection of God that we call righteousness or justice has to do with his equity. He is and always does what is right, what is equitable. He is morally correct always and only. But this verse does not only speak to the to God's essential character of righteousness, as is clear by the argument Paul is making in this section, is also speaking of a righteousness that comes from God. Some Bible translations even read the righteousness from God. Charles Hodge comments, It is the righteousness of which God is the author, which comes from him, which he gives, and which consequently is acceptable in his sight. I'll read that one more time. It is the righteousness of which God is the author, which comes from him, which he gives, and which consequently is acceptable in his sight. John MacArthur says the righteousness of God is the divine and eternal righteousness by which men can be made right with God. Or we could say it in this way, it is the righteousness that God requires and that which only God can supply for man to be made right before him. Paul says that this righteousness, the righteousness of God, has been manifested. It has been revealed, and it has been clearly made known. So how has this righteousness been manifested? How has it been made known? It has been made known apart from the law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This righteousness that comes from God comes apart from the law. And there are a couple ways that we can understand the word law here. And both ways are fitting for the argument that the Apostle Paul is making. First, law can be understood as the Mosaic law or the Old Covenant system. So Paul could be arguing that the law does not provide a way for man to be right with God. The Old Covenant system was not designed as an alternative means of salvation. The Old Covenant system was not given to justify or make men right in the sight of God but to bring us to the knowledge of sin in our need for a foreign righteousness. 
Secondly, the law can be understood as our works of the law or the works of the law. That is man's futile attempts to make himself right with God through his own obedience to the revealed will of God. But the righteousness of God that Paul speaks of comes apart from the law or without the law. It comes to sinful man apart from the old covenant system and apart from our works. The Apostle Paul just wrote in the previous verse of Romans 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul writes again in Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 21b, it says, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets here is another way of speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. So even though the Old Covenant system could not provide the righteousness God requires, nor commands obedience to it, the law and the prophets witness to this righteousness that would come from God. Do you remember Jesus' words after his resurrection as he's traveling to Emmaus and he talks, speaks with the disciples? Luke 16, verses 25 through 27 says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament scriptures bear witness to and testify to the righteousness of God that he would supply for his people through the work of his Messiah. The commandments, the rituals, the sacrifices were types and shadows of the righteousness of God that would be revealed. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Since the law has but a shadow, it looked forward, it was hints of what was to come. But not only do we see this in the types and shadows of Old Testament sacrifices, but one of the, uh, probably the clearest Old Testament texts that pointed forward to this foreign righteousness, this righteousness that would come from God, is found in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. It was his will, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, listen to this, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The righteousness of God, that is the righteousness of which God is the author, which comes from him, which he gives, and which consequently is acceptable in his sight, this righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, but witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Point two this morning is that this righteousness of God is received by faith. 
And this is in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Faith is a common theme here in Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. Verse 22, through faith. 25, received by faith. The one who has faith in Jesus, verse 26. By the law of faith, verse 27. Justified by faith, verse 28. Justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, verse 30. By this faith, verse 31. We want to understand what faith is and what it involves and also be clear on what it is not. Matthew Henry comments, Justifying faith respects Christ as Savior in all three anointed offices as prophet, priest, and king, trusting in him, accepting of him, and adhering to him in all these. It is by this that we become interested in that righteousness which God has ordained and which Christ has brought in. Or even if we look to our own confession of faith, the 1689 London Baptist, chapter 14, section 2, that reads, But the principal act of saving faith focused directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Saving faith, justifying faith, is believing, trusting, and embracing the person and work of Jesus. So it is by faith that the righteousness of God is received. And we must be careful here, though. We must not think that our faith is in any way meritorious. Faith is only the channel, the instrument, the means by which we receive the righteousness that God has provided to us by the work of Jesus Christ. So our faith must rest in the right object. And we see in this verse that our faith is in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the human name given to the eternal Son at his incarnation. The eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father, was born under a woman, born under the law. Jeremy Wicker just mentioned that this morning. He's the eternal Son who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, the God-man, is the object of our faith. But not only that, he is the Christ. This speaks to the works of Jesus, the one appointed by God, the one appointed to carry out the works of God as our prophet, priest, and king. John MacArthur comments again, Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of God's righteousness, and it is because of that truth that he can impart divine righteousness to those who trust in him. During his earthly incarnation, Jesus demonstrated God's righteousness by living a sinless life, in his death, Christ also demonstrated God's righteousness by paying the penalty for the unrighteous lives of sinners. In the coming verses, we're going to consider more fully what Christ has done to supply sinful man with the righteousness of God. So we have seen the righteousness of God manifested, verse 21. The righteousness of God received by faith, verse 22a. My third point this morning is found in verse 22b and verse 23 the righteousness of God needed. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul provides a summary statement in what we have already covered in the previous chapters of the letter. 
And just in case the reader or the hearers were to forget who man is apart from Christ, Paul reminds us that all people, both Jew and Gentile, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul writes, there is no distinction. All people are in need of this righteousness because all people come into the world with the same standing before God. There is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, the rich and the poor, the wise and the simple, the religious or irreligious. All people, everywhere, at all times, have the same standing before God apart from His grace. All people are on a level playing field, and it's not a good place to be, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are sinners by nature and by choice, and all people have failed to live up to God's perfect standard. In two chapters over in Romans 5, we see both the inherited nature uh, from the first Adam and our very own choice in sinning. Romans 5.12, it reads, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. All people have missed the mark. All people have failed to live up to God's perfect standard as his image bearers. And missing the mark comes with grave consequences. Listen to the words of the prophet Nahum describing God and the consequences of our rebellion against him. Nahum 1, 1-6 The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bishan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces before him. A few chapters over in Romans 6.23, we see that for the wages of sin and death is death. And this is not speaking of only our physical death, though that is part of the curse. It is speaking ultimately of eternal, spiritual death, which those who are apart from Christ will be separated from the love of God forever. Every sin, every coming up short to God's perfect standard is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. Therefore, the only right and just punishment is an infinite punishment. Second Thessalonians 1.9 reads, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his might. This is what we deserve. This is what every man who has ever lived has earned for his wage. We have all sinned against God and are in need of a righteousness that is not our own, because we do not inherently possess it, and we cannot earn it. Fourth point this morning is that the righteousness of God gifted. This is verses 24 and 25a. All are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here in verse 24, justified is used for the first time by the Apostle Paul in this letter. 
And we speak often of justification or being justified for it's a foundational truth of Christianity. It was the doctrine that shook the world 500 years ago during the Reformation. But often times we use words in the church like justified, justification, that we may not even be able to define or even explain. But it's important not, that we not only speak in biblical language, but that we understand the biblical language in which we speak. I'd like to read this definition by Dr. Steve Lawson. It's a bit lengthy, but I think it's helpful as we consider justification or being justified. Justification is a forensic declaration. The picture is a courtroom scene in which God the judge makes a legal declaration. He declares the guilty sinner to be righteous on the basis of the righteousness that Jesus Christ has secured for us. This pronouncement of righteousness is an immediate and irrevocable act. It takes place in a split second the moment the sinner believes in Jesus Christ. Our sanctification is progressive throughout the rest of one's life. Our glorification will take place in a moment and will last throughout all eternity. But justification takes place in the twinkling of an eye when one believes in Jesus Christ. This divine proclamation by the high court of heaven can never be reversed. What God has declared stands forever, permanently entered into the records of the supreme court of heaven. There is no higher court that could overrule the declaration of God in heaven on this matter. And we must connect the end of verse 22 with verse 24. For there is no distinction. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. Just as there is no distinction among people in regard to sin, there is no distinction among people on how one is justified before God. Again, there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, the rich and the poor, the wise and the simple the religious or the irreligious. Continuing in verse 24, Paul explains that our justification is by God's grace as a gift. Being justified, this legal act in which God declares us righteous, is by God's grace as a gift. God's grace is his unmerited favor towards sinful, law-breaking man. God did not see anything good in man that caused him to act. No sincerity, no humility, no hard work. There was no external influence on God that moved God's heart to act. Remember the words we just read in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, no one does good, not even one. God's work of salvation comes from his good pleasure to save, founded in his character of love, compassion, mercy, and grace. It has been said that the only thing that you and I brought to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So our justification can only be by God's grace as a gift from him. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. In Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every part of our salvation from beginning to end is by his grace as a gift. But this gift of justification is also very costly. We are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God has paid a great price for our salvation, for our 
justification. Verse 24, and, and are, all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The concept of redemption comes from the institution of slavery. And in both the Jewish and Roman worlds, a slave could buy his freedom or someone else could buy it for him by paying a redemption price to his owners. The idea is that someone is trapped, enslaved, kidnapped, or held captive, and thus a price must be paid or a sacrifice made in order to rescue him. We see this concept of redemption reaching all the way back into the earliest books of the Old Testament scriptures. On the eve of God rescuing his people from the bondage of the Egyptians, the Lord spoke these words to Moses in Exodus 6. Verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Prior to our redemption, we are in bondage to our corrupt nature, to sin, our guilt, the punishment and wrath of God that we deserve. We are held captive in the kingdom of darkness, cursed by God. Listen to these scriptures that speak of this slavery. In John 8, 34, Jesus is speaking. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul says a very similar thing in Romans six nineteen. That before our salvation, you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. The preacher of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 16 says that we, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Paul in Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things written in the book of the law and do them. But Christ, by his life and his death, paid a great price for our freedom in order to redeem us from the curse of the law, from death, and from the wrath of God. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7. And the Apostle Peter speaks of a very similar thing in 1 Peter 1.18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, that price paid to, to free us from slavery, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The price of our redemption was fully paid by the Father in the blood of his Son, and by his by the Son in giving his life as a ransom for many. Now in verse 25, we see that what God has done through the work of Jesus Christ to redeem us. Our redemption, the price paid for our freedom, was paid by Christ satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. God put forward. It is God who acted, not man achieve our salvation. God was under no was not under any obligation to save, but in his loving kindness he initiated our salvation. And we see here the image of a sacrifice. God put forward Christ Jesus as a public display, a public demonstration, a public sacrifice in order to appease, in order to satisfy his righteous wrath against sin. 
The word propitiation in the simplest sense means satisfaction. God is holy, righteous, and full of wrath towards all that oppose his rule, towards all that is polluted, corrupted, and sinful. Remember the words of Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. His wrath must be satisfied. It must be appeased. And Jesus Christ, by his perfect life and vicarious death, has satisfied the wrath of God. The full cup of God's wrath has, was poured upon the God-man. Jesus Christ drank every drop of the divine wrath, satisfying God's anger, so that those who have trusted upon Christ will never have to taste even a drop of it. In Essential Christian Doctrines, edited by John MacArthur, a section on propitiation reads, By receiving the full exercise of the Father's wrath against the sins of his people, Christ satisfied God's righteous anger against sin and thus turned away his wrath from us. But, <laughs> apologize. It turned away his wrath from us, who, had it not been for our substitute, were bound to suffer it ourselves. This is what the New Testament identifies as propitiation. John Murray, in his book, The Atonement, writes, The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his one son to the end that he, by his blood, shall make propitiation for the removal of his wrath. It was Christ so to deal with the wrath that the love would no longer be the objects of wrath, and love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. All those who have turned to Christ in faith are legally declared righteous before the Father, and this justification comes as a gift from God, paid for by the blood of the Son. Listen to the words of the hymn that we sing often here at Calvary, His Robes for Mine. His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law, Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless I stand with righteous works, not mine. Saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. His robes for mine. Here we see propitiation. God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed and thus the Father pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin then cried, Tis done. Sin wage is paid. Propitiation won. His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He, as though I, accursed and left alone. I, as though he, embraced and welcomed home. The final point before application this morning is found in verse 25b and verse 26. God's righteousness upheld. Verse 25b, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, we, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness. 
the shedding of Christ's blood to satisfy the righteous anger of God publicly demonstrates God's very own righteousness. Listen to these words from the Song of Moses recorded in Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The Lord's works are perfect. He is faithful, just, and upright. If this is true about God and the, script, and the scriptures declare it to be so, have you ever wondered how Christ passed over the former sins, the sins of the Old Testament saints? God did not punish in a judicial sense Abraham or David. You can look just a few chapters over where Paul talks about them being declared righteous. He did not punish in a judicial sense Abraham or David or the other Old Testament saints for their sins, not because he pretended that they did not happen, but because he would send his son one day to become the sin-bearer and wrath-satisfier for the sins of all people of all times who have trusted in the provisions and promises of God. God's character demands the punishment of sin, and God always acts consistent with his holy character. His righteousness is upheld in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And at the cross, we see the greatest demonstration of God's love. But at the same time, we see the greatest demonstration of God's wrath against sin. Again, in verse 26, we see God making known his righteousness in the sacrifice of Christ. So that, now we have a purpose statement, so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Dr. John Snyder in Behold Your God, The Way to Majesty, devotional, he writes, How can God give eternal life to those who rightly deserve death? Does he bend his own rules to do so? Does he lower his standards of justice in order to let mercy rise above? Before we allow ourselves to think, I do not care how he did it, I'm just glad he saved me, we need to seriously consider the implications of such a thought. In our everyday life, do we admire a judge who bends the rules to rescue his son or daughter from a prison sentence that he or she deserves? Do we not despise the judge who shows partiality and bends the rules? How can we truly worship and trust God if our salvation was accomplished by the same means that an unjust earthly judge skirts the laws to free his criminal child? How can the holiest judge declare the guiltiest people to be guiltless? In order to give this kind of gift to those who have earned death, God did not violate his justice. In fact, the crucifixion of Christ satisfied, propitiated God's justice and thereby publicly demonstrated to all that God's righteous, God is righteous in the way that he has offered mercy to those in the Old Covenant and the New Testament churches. God is the just judge, and at the same time, he is the one who justifies the guilt guilty who have entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ alone. End quote. God is able to declare sinful man righteous because he has upheld his righteousness in the sacrifice of Christ. He is both the just and justifier of all those who trusted in Jesus Christ. So we come back to the question that Job asks, but how can a man be made in the right before God? Or how can a man be in the right before God? It is by the righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law to be received by faith 
as we recognize our great need and trust in God's grace and mercy in sending his son to redeem us, that he can be both the just and justifier of all who trust in Jesus. Now finally this morning, we'll look at verses 27 through 31 with a, uh, as a few points of application. Let me read that section. And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this, by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. The first point of application is that there is no room for boasting. Since we are saved, justified, declared righteous in the sight of God, completely apart from the, from the law, and only by the redeeming work of Jesus, there is no room for boasting. And this is verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. There is no room for self-congratulations and self-exaltation. It is excluded. If we think that we have contributed in any way to our salvation, it will lead to pride in our hearts and boasting in ourselves before God. I've heard the question asked by Christians at times and even similar phrases sung in modern, modern worship song. The question goes something like this. I wonder what God saw in me that made him love me and save me. God did not see anything in you or me to love us. He did not meet us halfway because we tried really hard to be saved. He did not save us because he saw how sincere our hearts were. We contributed nothing to our salvation. So there is no room for boasting in ourselves, no room for self-exaltation. But because we contributed nothing and God did everything, we can boast in our Lord and the salvation he alone has accomplished. Consider the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your callings, brother. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to save the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The second point of application this morning is found in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Believers uphold the law. The righteousness that comes from God through Jesus Christ and is received by faith does not overthrow the law or nullify the law, but upholds, confirms, and establishes the law. In the good news of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, the law was upheld when Christ paid the full penalty that the law demanded. Also, the law is vital today because it is the means by which God exposes our sin and drives men and women to Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 
23 through 26. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And the righteousness that comes from God through Jesus Christ and is received by faith does not give us license to sin. God's moral law as revealed in the Ten Commandments and taught and expanded through the scriptures of the New Testament are eternal because they reflect the very character of God. And now, having been saved by God, we desire to honor God by our obedience to God's moral law as we are enabled to by His Spirit. The final point of application is found in right between verses 27 and 31, verse 28 through 30. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. For is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. There is only one way of salvation, the same for the Jew and for the Gentile, and it is a salvation that is received by faith that rests in the redeeming and propitiating work of Jesus Christ. If you, are trust, if you are not trusting upon Jesus Christ in faith, the wrath of God abides on you. There are no good works that will impress. There are no good works that will shield you from his wrath. But there is hope, not in your works, but in the work of Jesus Christ. So turn from your self-righteousness, turn from your sin, and trust upon the eternal Son who became man to fulfill God's law perfectly. And this God-man, Jesus Christ, was obedient to the Father, something that we cannot do, to the point of death, even death on the cross. He went to the cross to bear the sins of his people and to satisfy the wrath of God. But he did not stay in the grave. And the third day he rose from the dead. He has ascended to the Father. He sits at his right hand. And one day he will return to claim those who are his and judge those who have rejected him and his gospel. So trust in this Christ. He is able to save. Let us pray. Father, we stand amazed in what you have done to save. When we were unlovable, you loved us. You sent your Son into this dark world to redeem those who have rejected you and who were enslaved to sin and guilt and fear, who were cursed, were children of your wrath. We belong to the kingdom of darkness. But we who were once children of your wrath, you sent to save, and Christ has satisfied the wrath on our behalf. You put him forward as a propitiation that we who trust in him will never know your divine righteous anger, but only know your grace and mercy. Would knowing and embracing these truths lead us to humility, where there is no room for self-boasting? But would our boast be in you? And may we as believers seek to honor you by the conduct of our lives. Grace does not give us a license to sin, but it is by grace that you enable us to obey that which you have commanded. And Lord, would you turn the hearts of those who are not trusting in Christ? Would they see their great need 
and would they see your provision in the personal work of Christ. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.